that's not all that bad, right? The, the choice to stop gossiping because I like the way that it makes me feel. The choice to continue to watch pornography even though it dehumanizes the people I'm watching and it's not good for my soul. The choice to live extravagantly and to not give generously. All these, these are just like between me and the Lord. They're, they're not a big deal. And very clearly in the story, Samuel says, your no to God is like the sin of witchcraft. And we say, nah, that, that can't be. And isn't it interesting that for Saul, in his minor areas of disobedience, his minor nose to God, ultimately ends with him consulting demons. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Uh, my name is Monica Direct, and I will be reading our scripture passage this morning. Uh, my husband, Marcel, and I and our three kids have been a part of Gateway for almost 10 years, and Marcel serves as the pastor of Faith Formation and Outreach, and myself and our children have been involved in various ministries throughout the years. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel 28, verses 3 to 11. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If uh, you have your Bibles and you haven't gone there yet, I do invite you to grab those and find First Samuel chapter 28, and also put a tab there and look for chapter 31, which is probably the very next page in your Bible. Today, we are closing out the first of the two books of Samuel, and just as a reminder, they go together. It's kind of like the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone. They're a cohesive unit, but as we finish out this first book of two, it is a helpful moment for us to remember the major theme of these two books, which I've shared with you a number of times, but I want you to see it again this morning as we close out 1 Samuel. It goes like this. God humbles the proud, and he exalts the humble. And the story that we're going to look at today 
it is going to showcase for us in remarkably grotesque and uncomfortable detail the way in which that works out in our lives, and Saul is going to be our case study. That always, 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 when we choose a posture of pride, it always ends the same way as Saul. No exceptions. No exceptions. And so if we have the eyes to see, there's going to be two things that we're going to pick up this morning. The first is the reasons why pride cometh before the fall. And in so doing, we're, we're going to be able to see, hopefully, a, a negative example that we can learn from. Hopefully, Saul can pay our dumb tax for us, and we can say, I better not live my life that way. And number two, even more importantly, it's going to show us the antidote to living a life of pride so that we might put on a heart of humility. And once again, I've shared with you, Saul is our example. Saul is going to show us how we might be able to live a rather exemplary life, go to church, read our Bibles, tithe our income, be a part of small groups, uh, volunteer our time, serve in foreign missions, do all these sorts of religious activities that are expected in our church and that we commend to you, and at exactly the same time, you can still be far from God. And we got to ask ourselves that question, how is that possible that we could do that? How could we be so self-deceptive that we could engage in all these sorts of religious practices and the grapevine would be dead in terms of our relationship and our connection to the God that we serve. And Saul is our example. So I'd like to start today by looking at a theme that we see throughout Scripture about the nature of pride and how it works. And then when we look again at the story, my hope is that you will see it with greater color and texture and clarity. You're going to see the way in which it works in very subtle ways in our own lives today. Because I've shared with you for four and a half years, no one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. We engage in the sin of self-deception all the time, even in the midst of our religiosity. And Saul is a master at this. So from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is devoted to one theme, and we call it the gospel, the good news. We open up the book of Genesis, and we see that God created the heavens and the earth, and he said it was good. This is the creation narrative. There was shalom in the world that he made, peace, justice, harmony, and everyone walked with God in perfect unity and peace. We loved the Lord our God. We loved our neighbor as ourself. But already in Genesis chapter 3, things go haywire and everything disintegrates. And from then until now, we live in a broken world full of broken people who insist on breaking things. But already in Genesis chapter 3, we see the promise of of redemption, that God in Christ will make all things new. A redeemer will come, and he will take away all the sin and the brokenness and the destruction and the pride of our own hearts, and he will bear it upon himself. And in so doing, if we accept this gracious gift from God, we can be set free, and we can be reunited with God once again. This is the message of the gospel in a nutshell, this is what every Christian believes. 
And if you don't understand what Jesus Christ came to do, then unfortunately all the books in your Bible are going to be nothing more than moralistic tales and helpful stories for, for you to try and improve your own life. And it might be somewhat helpful to you as you try to live your life and avoid relatively bad things, but that's all it will be. You will not see the message to whom all these stories point. Every prophet, every priest, every judge, every king, every story in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is trying to portray to you the gospel narrative of Jesus. And so is this story as well. And it, these stories are trying to reveal to us the ways in which we tend to run from God. That we build our own little mini kingdoms over and against God's kingdom. The way that we run from him. The way that we only care about ourselves. That we try to get out from under God's hand. That we try to make a name for ourselves. The way that we try to say, God, I see your plan, but I raise you mine. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. And once again, Saul is our example. He's going to help us see this. So... If we see Saul as this example for all of us on how we're prone to taking the gospel of grace and turning it into something sick and twisted and ugly, what does that look like? What is the formula so that, hopefully, if you brought your mirror Bibles this morning, you can ask this question, do I do that? Do I live my life that way? God, are there areas in which I, I'm acting as though I'm being totally obedient? I'm walking in obedience, but not in love. Because God, what I really want is for you to do what I want. And maybe, just maybe, we can, remember we were talking about the golden rule last week, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Maybe, just maybe, I can use all my religious observance and my morality and my good deeds as a way to manipulate and control God to get what I want. And that's what Saul is showing for us. So we need to see the formula for what, it, for what it is, how it works in our lives. We need to be able to pinpoint it, to run from it, and to return to the gospel of grace. That's what hopefully we can see today. So let me show you these and then we'll unpack them together. Uh, there's two primary ways that we do this. The first is called legalism. And the second is called antinomianism. There will be a test after the sermon today, just so you know. So antinomianism is a, a manner of thinking about this. This is someone who talks a lot about God's grace. Grace, grace, grace. Legalism, they talk a lot about God's law. Antinomianism, they talk a lot about God's love. It's all about God's love. And on the other side, the legalists, they, they're prone to talking about God's truth in abstract form. Typically, someone who's caught up in antinomianism, they're, they're on the left side of the aisle, politically, socioeconomically, religiously, legalism. Typically, they're on the right side of those things, and that's kind of how they orchestrate their lives. But here's what I want you to see right on the front end. Both of them are trying to do exactly the same thing. And Saul, he uses both of these methods. He's not an antinomianist. He's not a legalist. He is someone who's trying to say, how can I get what I want? How can I have my cake and eat it too? How can I manipulate God to get what I want in life? And it doesn't matter what sort of methods he uses. He's going to try and use both. So antinomianism, it typically sounds like this. 
I don't have to obey God's law because God loves me just the way that I am. He loves me unconditionally. He doesn't care about whether I'm moral or immoral or any of those things. He just accepts me on the basis of who I am and he wants me to be my true authentic self. That's what he wants for me. In fact, the greatest good that I can do is to do what is right in my own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Have we experienced this in our own life? And isn't it interesting that the book of 1 Samuel, it starts with that. You might recall our very first week in this series, I read to you the end of the book of Judges, and it goes this way. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so then we, when we picked up in 1 Samuel, it started with this theme. We saw it with the high priest Eli and his sons who were doing whatever they wanted. They were desecrating the temple priesthood because after all, God doesn't really care. We can live our lives. We can do what, our want, what we want even within the temple. We saw this with the nation of Israel. We even saw it with King Saul. God tells him to wipe out the Amalekites. And Saul says, God, I see your, pl your plan and I raise you mine. Here's what I'm going to do. All the weak, sickly things I'm going to put to death. But all the things that I could use for myself, all the things that are of value, I'm going to preserve and keep for myself. And so we even see it with the heart of Saul that he's functioning within this view, this antinomianism idea, I'm going to do whatever I want and God will accept me. And so here's what the antinomianism, antinomianism view sounds like today. It's someone who says this, I am my own and I belong to myself. I am my own and I belong to myself. Legalism typically sounds like this. I can be saved through my own good works. God's love is conditioned on the basis that I can offer him something in return. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. God, I will do good to you. You will do good to me. And so my, my relative avoidance of sin or my observance of uh, having a good moral track record, doing good deeds, on that basis, God will bless my life. He will give me good things. And we saw that in 1 Samuel as well. You might recall, very first week, we looked at the story of Micah and his mom, and he decides to hire his own priest, and then he has little religious trinkets, and he puts them in his home, and then he says this, Micah said, now I know the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. In other words, now God has to bless my life. He has to do good things to me because I've done good things to him and we see it again in the story we see how Israel they they take the ark of God into battle as a way to try and manipulate and control God to manipulate the outcome of the battle it blows up in their face and not ironically what does Saul do he doesn't learn from that example he just doubles down on it and he does the same thing again if we follow God's righteous rules if we observe what God is commanding us to do then he has to bless us he has to give me the victory and over and over again, we see this popping out. We saw it last week with David. He becomes the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man watch group, right? And he expects good things to return to him. And when he receives evil for his good, it elicits a rage within him. And he's prepared to do something evil himself. Because he's not filled with goodness. He's filled with an expectation that if I do good, you'll do good back. And so we see this over and over and over again in this story. And so the legalist view, someone who has this view, it sounds a little bit like this. 
I am my own, and I belong to myself. Here's what I want you to see, friends. Here's, here's the great irony in all of this. When we talk about antinomianism and legalism, I'm not talking about two different groups of people. I'm talking about the same people, all of us who are filled with pride, filled with ego in our heart, using whatever methods we can use to get what we want. And so when you think about antinomianism, you might have this caricature in your mind. You might think, you know, this is a person who like has rainbow hair and they have tattoos and piercings, love over hate t-shirt, right? You just accept everybody, love, love, love. And legalism, maybe they have three-piece suits, right? Their, their ties stuck in their pocket and a lot of starch in the collar. They always know what the truth is. These are caricatures. But the truth is that every single person who has a heart of pride has both antinomianism and legalism tied up in their hearts. These are methods that we use to run from God. So here's the predicament. I put it this way in your note sheet. Both legalism and antinomianism are methods used by humans as a way to manipulate and control God rather than worship him. And I'm telling you, we all do it. We all do it. Now, I want you to see how this has played out in the life of Saul. Let's review Saul as a case study, shall we? We see within the story that he actually did a lot of really great things. He won a lot of victories for the Lord and for Israel. Uh, he purged the land of mediums and witches and wizards and necromancers, which was in obedience to the word of the Lord in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. F clearly, he's, he's trying to follow God's law as the king of Israel. Um, he donated heavily to the temple priesthood. We see this in 1 Samuel 15 and 16. Uh, we see that uh, he's actually... A pretty good family man. Unlike David, as we're going to see in the number of weeks, there's no instances of sexual sin or marital infidelity of any kind. So he's, he's faithful to his spouse. He's apparently a, a good father. So he's, he's a good family man. Also, he regularly prays to God when he's in a bind. Honestly, if Saul lived today, he'd probably be an elder of a church. He'd probably be an upstanding citizen. You would look at him and say, my goodness, look at this religiously observant person. He's following God. He's really successful in his business. He tithes his income. He takes time off from work to go on mission trips overseas. He's doing all these good things, and yet he's far from God. He doesn't have a heart after God. How is that possible? And then, once again, we got to ask that question, am I in this? God, are, are there ways in which, even in my good deeds, in my religious observance of your righteous rules, I'm using it as a way to manipulate you, not because I love you with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Only you can answer that question. Only you can speak to the, the subtle ways in which you might be tempted to do religious things, but not because you love Jesus, but because you love yourself. But Saul's the picture. He's the picture. And so as we pick up the story, I want you to see that all of Saul's religious observance hasn't gotten him where he wants he said, I'm going to follow God's rules, and hopefully he'll bless me. It's not working. So he flips the script. He flips the script. So again, look at 1 Samuel 28, 
starting at verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all of Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. There it is, right? So he's following God's law. He's removing all the mediums. A medium is someone who speaks to spirits. A necromancer or a spiritist is someone who claims to be able to talk with the dead. And Saul has expelled all of them from the land. Verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul was gathered. All Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid and terror filled his heart. We see throughout the book of 1 Samuel that both fear and insecurity are the primary markers of Saul. He is filled with insecurity. Filled with dread. He's paranoid of everything. He's afraid for his future. He's afraid for his kingdom. He's afraid to go bankrupt. He's afraid for his life. He's fearful of how other people perceive him. Right? Uh, Pastor Adam preached on that text where the, the ladies gathered in the street and said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He's insecure about his public perception. It motivates him to want to kill David, an innocent man, because of the comparisons. Saul is paranoid of everything. And so if, if you're trying to get a bit of a diagnostic, like, Lord, am, am I struggling with some of these things? Here's a question that you can ask yourself. Here's kind of a barometer that you can use. I put it this way in your note sheet. Fear and jealousy, you might add insecurity, are often the first indicators that you are walking in your own strength out of fellowship with God. Those are often the first indicators of that. Now think about it. When, when you are totally and completely surrendered to God and you know that God is sovereign, he is all-powerful, and he desires his glory and your good. That is to say that the best possible outcome for your life, God wants that for you. If you trust all those things to be true, that he is in total and complete control, then you're going to be as cool as a cucumber in the midst of the circumstances you face. It doesn't mean you're going to like it. It doesn't mean you're going to be grateful for difficult circumstances. It just means you have hope Hope to the Christian is not wishful thinking. It is knowledge and certainty of what has not yet come to pass. I know the future is secure because I rest in God's hands. He's got you. And so we don't fret over the little things or the circumstances of our life because we know how the story ends. Now, think, think with me about really young kids. Young kids. They don't worry about things, do they? And isn't it interesting that even Jesus himself, he said this, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever, what's the word? Help me out. Humbles, whoever humbles himself is like that little child, or like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So let me share with you three things about kids that we can learn from them. Number one, little children have this inner confidence that parents will provide for their needs. They are utterly relentless in this. 
Many of you know I have four kids. My youngest is Kate. She's five years old. And I kid you not, every single morning, my morning starts the same way. Her jumping on my, da- on my bed and going, Dad, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. When's breakfast? When's breakfast? I'm, when's breakfast? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. It's really cute. No, it's not. But she's relentless, right? This is a safe place. Kids are in kids' church. That's, that's the struggle, right? So like we, we see the inner confidence within children that their parents or their guardians or people in positions of authority whom they trust, they just know that they are able to provide for their needs. They have such amazing confidence in their parents. Number two, little children, they're less worried about what might or might not happen in the future. They're, they're just like not worried about those things. All they see is immediate needs. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? But they're not worried about the future. Like what's going to become of my business or my empire or how are things going to turn out in a couple of weeks? They're not worried about those things. They're just in the moment. They see the immediate needs. And once again, I'm thinking about Israel in the wilderness. God gives them enough manna for one day. Sufficient is my grace for you today. Sufficient is my grace for you tomorrow. Don't worry about that. I got you today. And kids are just like, I'm hungry. (laughs) I'm thirsty. Give me my needs for today. Number three, we see in little children, they're less worried about what everyone else thinks. Isn't that true? I think that's one of the reasons, like they're not caught up in their own heads. It's the reason why they can make these huge, grand gestures. It's the reason why they can be big goofs and not worry about it, because they're not worried about what other people are thinking of them. They're not caught up in their conscience, like, what will my, my friends think of this? What will my peers think of that? They're just filled with joy. And we see this in the beauty of children. But when you rid yourself of your childlike faith, and your dependence on God. You strip that away, and in turn, you create this self-sufficiency, this self-dependency. Then it always, always, always creates fear and insecurity in our lives. I love the way that the Heidelberg Catechism puts this. The first question and answer of the Catechism goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death, the answer, that I'm not my own, but I belong both body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But the religious Saul, he's lost his childlike faith. And what he has put on in, um, in separation from that is a new catechism. You might call it the antinomianism catechism. You might call it the legalism catechism or the Saul catechism. You might even put your own name in there, the Justin catechism. Things that we grapple with, and it goes a little bit like this. What's with all your fear and jealousy and insecurity in life and in death? The answer, that I am my own and belong to myself. Do you feel that? Don't we live our lives that way? Always caught up in ourself, our own pride, the subtle pride that exists where we feel like we need to take control of our lives. And it fills us with fear and insecurity. Now watch how this plays out in Saul's life with a dramatic turn 
of events. Remember, Saul, he's thrown out all the mediums, all the necromancers, all the spiritists in obedience to God, but that hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. And so he flips the script, verse 6. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. These are the three ways that God spoke to his people during this time. The Lord is not answering. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I might go and inquire of her. Legalism's not working. Throw that off. Let's flip the script, go the opposite direction. There's one in Endor, they said. Any Star Wars fans? So cool. Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one that I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? So it's interesting. Apparently she's a medium. She can see the future, right? She can see what's happening in the unseen realm, and yet she can't even see the person standing right in front of her is the very person who kicked her out of Israel in the first place. So very clearly she's a trickster, right? She's not someone who has spiritual powers. She's a trickster. And yet here, here's the irony, what God does with this. Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. Verse 12, when the woman, woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. She's totally freaked out. Like finally, you know, what, what is her occupation? This is the thing I do. I bring up spirits. When it happens, she's totally freaked out. It worked. Ah! Totally freaked out. And so here's what I find so interesting about this. That uh, Samuel comes up. The medium is, is freaked out. Things that we, we're not really accustomed to seeing. God is doing something here in this story that is the exception to the rule. If we had more time, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the biblical Christian view on mediums and necromancers. If you have questions, come talk to me after the service. We just don't have time today. Look at verse 16. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the armies of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Now, if you got your Bible, turn with me to chapter 31. This is how the story of Saul ends. But as we turn there, let me just point out to you something that I think is really, really important. A few weeks ago, I shared with you that disobedience to God, willful disobedience against God, is like the sin of witchcraft. Samuel said this in chapter 15. He said, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And, and we said, really? Witchcraft? Isn't that a bit of an overstatement? Is that like a metaphor for something else? That, that seems like really severe, really, really extreme. 
And like just me and my minor areas of disobedience, it's not all that bad, right? The, the choice to stop gossiping because I like the way that it makes me feel. The choice to continue to watch pornography even though it dehumanizes the people I'm watching and it's not good for my soul. The choice to live extravagantly and to not give generously. All these, these are just like between me and the Lord. They're, they're not a big deal. It's not all that serious. And, and I hope you hear the nuance here. I'm not talking about the areas of your life in which you are trying to kill the desires of the flesh. You're trying to walk in obedience and sometimes we fall. I'm talking about those areas where there is willful disobedience or willful negligence. You know it's wrong, but you kind of just like pull it out of your brain and throw it away. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to talk about that. Those areas that are not fully devoted to the Lord. And very clearly in the story, Samuel says, your no to God is like the sin of witchcraft. And we say, nah, that can't be. And isn't it interesting that for Saul, in his minor areas of disobedience, his minor no's to God, ultimately ends with him consulting demons. That's where his story ends. And so again, it's a warning for us. Samuel's filled with pictures to help us see that willful disobedience to God always ends the same way. It always ends like this. I'm willing to make compromises because, after all, God's my cosmic consultant. He's not the Lord and ruler of my life. And so I can say, God, we agree 96% of the time, but that 4%, that's reserved for me. I can do whatever I want with that. Either God is the Lord of the universe or he isn't. Either God is the sovereign king of the universe or you are. And you got to choose. You got to pick. And so will you lay down your life as an offering before God. Verse 31. Let's see how the story comes to an end. Starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them. And many fell dead at Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons. Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malki, Shua. Saul watched his entire army fall apart. Then he watched his sons die to the sword. Everything disintegrates in front of him. And I think there's a message here, especially for those of us who are parents. Parents, our children suffer our mistakes. Our children suffer our mistakes. Now, we, we typically don't like to think that way. No, like it, it only affects me, right? The, the sins of my life, it only affects me. No, it doesn't. Don't deceive yourself. There is an adverse effect there's a consequence, either negative or positive, for the way that we live our lives, for our children, our spouses, our, our family members, our close friends. They suffer those effects too. And so especially for those of you who are parents, please, please, please partner with us as the church in seeking to disciple your kids. Partner with the school to disciple your kids. But never give any other institution the primary task of equipping your children. That's for you. Equip your kids. Lead them and guide them by your example. It's such a vital element of scripture. Verse 3. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through. Or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, 
he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelites' army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, kind of like a trophy, and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. And thus ends our reading of First Samuel. What a sad story. What a terrible tragedy. So let me give you a 30-second recap of this entire book. God makes a promise to the people of Israel. He destroys the Philistine army without Israel even picking up their pinky finger. And he makes a promise. I will be your king. I will be your protector. Only put your trust in me. They say, God, you're great and all, but give us a king because we want to put our trust in something that we can see. No offense, you're great, but we want to put our trust in something we can see. Saul, their king, becomes an egomaniac, and at the end of his day, he consults demons in order to try to win this battle, and it results in their death and their demise at, ironically, don't miss the irony here, at the expense of the army of the Philistines. They lose to the Philistines, the very army that Jesus, that, that God had already protected them from. And so, again, Pictures for us to see, I put it this way in your note sheet, all attempts to be our own king will leave us worse off than when we started. And you can use any sort of methods. You can use antinomianism. Me and God were great. I trust God 95% of the time in my life, but he doesn't really care about the other 5%. Not a big deal. You can choose legalism. If I scratch God's back, he'll scratch mine. If I'm good to God, he'll be good to me. And in that way, I can manipulate and control God to get what I want. Both of them are doing the same thing. You are trying to be the king of your own life rather than acknowledging the one true king and Lord of eternity and the whole universe. And that's the point that we have to look at today. So if, like Saul, we are all prone to wander, you know, we think of that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If the human predicament is pride, then what is the antidote? Again, to see throughout Scripture, this theme has been playing out time and time and time and time again. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God says, put your trust in me. Put your trust in me. You can eat of any fruit in the entire garden. Just don't touch that one. And if, by, if you touch that one, that means there's a distrust in me. What do they do? They take the fruits. And then there's the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain says, you know, he's, he's jealous of his brother who has this good relationship with God because his brother gives his first and his best to the Lord. And God says, sin is crouching at your door. Don't you know? I'll accept you if you just give me your best. Saul kills his brother. 
Israel's out in the wilderness. God says, put your trust in me. Take one day of manna, not a week, not a month, not a year. What do they do? They hoard up the manna so that they don't have to put their trust in God because they don't want to put their trust in God. They want to put their trust in themselves. It disintegrates. Or there's the people of Israel at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and they say, God, you're great and all. You already gave us the victory over the, the Philistine army, but we want a king that we can see, one that we can trust, one that we can put our eyes on. It's the predicament of our souls. Pride, 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 trying to strip away God so that we can control our own destiny. What's the antidote? What's the antidote? Rather than telling you, I want to show you with a story. The late, great Charles Spurgeon, he told the story of his conversion, and I think it's remarkably fitting given what we've been talking about today. It's a little bit long, but I want you just to sit back and to hear his conversion story and then we'll see it for ourselves. It goes like this. He, he's a teenager at the time. He's caught up in a snowstorm. And he goes to what he calls a primitive Methodist chapel. His words. And then he says this. And I quote. In that chapel, there may have been only a dozen or 15 people. I heard of the primitive Methodists. How they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter much to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister didn't even come in that morning. He was snowed in too, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. His words, not mine. The poor uneducated man was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was this, look unto me and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but it didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. Anyone can look. Even, even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in a broad Essex accent. I don't know if I should try. Maybe you're looking to, no, I'm not going to do it. Maybe you're looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourself. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at my father's right hand. Look, oh poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And then he looked at me under the balcony and he must have known that I was a stranger. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. Should I do that? <laughs> However, it was a good blow. It struck me right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't look to Jesus, obey my text, and at this moment, you will be saved. 
Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, only as primitive Methodists could do, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I was so possessed with that one thought. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. Look to Christ and you will be saved. So look at the story, friends. It's ugly. It's grotesque. Saul has to watch his army fall apart. He watches his sons die, and then he, he dies himself. And then what happens? His body is stripped of its armor, and then his body is hung up for all to see. Do you see it? Do you see it? Like Saul, Jesus was taken captive by his enemies. And just like Saul, his clothes were stripped away, and Jesus was laid naked and bare for all to see. And just like Saul, he was elevated and strung up. And there he lay for all to see. But there's one difference between Saul and between Jesus. Jesus didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve it. But he stayed. Why did he stay? He stayed for you. He stayed for me so that we would never have to face the just due penalty of our sins, the outcome, just like Saul. Because Jesus knew that only one of us has to die, either Saul or me, either Justin or me, either you or me. He chose me. He said, I will take that death. And so here's the antidote, friends. I put it this way in your note sheet, talking about this primitive Methodist non-pastor, I love that part, not even a pastor, lay person, he says this, look, 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 you have nothing to do but to look and to live. And so those are the choices that you get to make today. You can choose the life of Saul, a life of pride, fixated on yourself, and here's the net outcome, your life will be filled with anxiety and torment and fear, and it will end just like Saul's. Or you can choose a life pattern in Christ and you can lay everything else down and you can give it to him and he will be the Lord of your life and he will set you free. Here's my question to you as we close. Have you accepted that gift? Some of you here, maybe you've never made that conscious decision in your entire life. Others of you, maybe you've been following Jesus for years, but not like this. Not like this. Said, God, you got 90%, 95%, 99% of my life, but you don't get this. And God's saying, Give me everything. Can you make that conscious decision today for Jesus to be the Lord and the King of your life? Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through 1st and 2nd Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.